But we're studying James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, and we're studying it under the title, Receive God's Word Meekly. And that comes right out of the text. And we began our study last Lord's Day, and we will finish it, Lord willing, this morning as we take this time uh, together. So let's go ahead and just begin by reading the text, James, uh, one chapter, uh, James chapter 1, verse 19, and we'll read through verse 25 this morning. James says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That is, receive or welcome with open arms the word of God with humility, with submissiveness. Search it out so that you can get under its authority. Make it your aim, your joy, your desire to know and follow the word as it is implanted in you. Sort of like uh, Brother Trey read in 2 Corinthians, this word that that the Lord places in our hearts as we follow him and as we we learn from the spirit what God has, has written for us. Let it become a part of you. This is not passive observance of the divine scripture. This is active, happy participation. And this idea, this exhortation, as we saw last week, is the hinge on which these several verses turn, which is to say that the central idea in these verses is welcoming and, and, and living in the word of God. However, James goes on to say in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, I am aware as a preacher and a teacher and a public speaker in general that not all of you are actually listening to me at this very moment. I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just true. Maybe more of you are listening at the moment, you know, but, uh, but a second ago you weren't. And that's not a criticism. It's a consequence of one simple fact, and that is that you can think so much faster than I can speak. A, a normal speaker averages about 140 to 180 words per minute. And sometimes I know I'm kind of on the higher end of that, uh, but, but that's the average. So my speech is going out at this particular rate. But normally, you can process words at an average rate of 400 words per minute. Some of you less, uh, some, of you, uh, some of you a little bit more, okay? <laughs> Some people can be much more than 400. 
So, so that puts me as the speaker or the preacher at a great disadvantage when it comes to holding your attention because this is what you are doing when I am speaking. You are listening to me speak these words and your mind has time to go here and there, but you're still hanging on the words. But then you go off sometimes and think about something else, but that's okay because when you come back and pick up the words, the context will often tell you what was being said while you were gone. In fact, truth be told, some of you have literally been around the world and back just the time I, just in the time I started speaking uh, a few minutes ago. Some of you are getting married this summer. You've already been thinking about that. Some of you are thinking about lunch. Uh, uh, some of you, like uh, Joe Provenzano is probably thinking what's going on in the assembly line at BMW. Jonathan has probably been to Yemen two or three times but since, I, since I started. And it's just, it's just it's a quick thought and you're back again. It's the way we are. And we do this at various intervals when we're listening to public speaking, like a sermon, because there are all kinds of thoughts that come to our brain that we have time to dwell on while we're listening to sustained speech. And we're not doing anything wrong. It's just the way the human mind works in communication. But then there are those times when your mind goes wandering off and you don't come back for a while. And, and while you're gone, I've moved on. <laughs> and then you have to figure out where I am and you have to maybe grab a couple of the words and start figuring out through the context what in the world I'm saying. Now, what does that mean for me as a speaker? It means that a public speaker or preacher never has 100% of the audience 100% engaged 100% of the time. Rather, we are speaking to an audience where let's say 80% of you on a, on a good day, okay, are, 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 are listening and 20% are off somewhere in another thought. But if the speaker is holding attention, then those 20% are coming back to re-engage. Well, at the same time, some of the 80% are going off. And so an audience is a constantly changing dynamic of attention. Some are tuning in, well, others are tuning out, and on and on it goes. That's actually what's happening in any kind of speaker and audience situations. Now, there are other realities I think that we should be aware of that play into this phenomenon. One reality is that sometimes there are huge personal events going on in our lives as audience members, and this makes it difficult for us to keep our minds on something when we're hearing it spoken publicly. It could be some serious problem you're dealing with that's consuming your thoughts. It could be something exciting that's about to take place. Another reality that impedes listening is technology. Now, I don't mean that we're distracted by technology during the sermon like I was talking about last week. I remember where last week I was talking about the, the kids at BJ that I found out about that were watching movies uh, during the Bible conference sermons. I could not believe the energy that was coming from you when I was talking about this. <laughs> I thought some of you were about to grab your pitchforks and go storm the castle, you know, <laughs> right during the sermon, you know. So I was, I was really kind of taken back with that. I don't know if you could tell. I was like, what have I started? Uh, but I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the fact that our lives are so saturated with media technology in our communication and in our information gathering and entertainment so for so many hours every day that it has impacted our ability to listen in, in person. Like it or not, I am not as entertaining as an iPhone 
or a game, or a Hollywood movie, or a ball game. I mean, especially when Ohio is playing. And this is a conundrum for theological preaching. Because unless we strip away all serious content and theology from our preaching and turn our sermons into engaging little TED Talks for Christians with itching ears... Bible preaching cannot hold the attention of those who expect every minute of their lives to be filled with a soundbite or movement on a screen to hold their interest. And the words of the sermon then can seem boring, and the mind wanders, and the travesty of all of this is that the words of life that the sermon is trying to bear out, trying to proclaim, seem distant and unimportant. But at the same time, the Bible says that we are to preach the word. That might have gone out of style in our culture, but it is not out of style in the word of God. This is what God has told us to do. And God says, be ready in season and out of season. That means when it's popular, when it's not popular. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears and be accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So he says, as the text continues, we must be sober-minded and do the work of an evangelist. So what is the answer for us, you and me, who are conditioned to have weaker minds, perhaps, than generations in the past when it comes to listening to sustained explanation and argumentation and application, who live in a culture of distractions when we think so much faster than the speaker. What are you and I to do about this? And, and, and partly, speakers try to keep audiences engaged. That's true. But the answer is not totally with the speaker. The answer, in part, is that we, the audience, have to take our responsibility as the listener more seriously. We have to learn to intentionally give our attention to the speaker. We have to submit ourselves to the text. When it comes to hearing preaching, we have to learn not just to hear preaching, but to listen to preaching. When we gather on the Lord's day, when we get uh, to the part of the worship where God's word is proclaimed, by the way, this is, this is part of worship. The, the, the sermon is part of everything we've been doing is, been, is being given to the Lord in worship. This is part of it. When we get to this part of the sermon, do you, do you hear a sermon or do you listen to a sermon? There's a huge difference. And do you listen eagerly because you're anticipating the word of God being open and the meaning of the text being explained in its context and the moral weight of the text, what you ought to do and what you ought to believe being laid upon you. When James says at the beginning of verse 19, let every person be quick to hear, this is the kind of hearing he's talking about, not just physical hearing but intentional hearing that is yearning to believe and obey. You see, we cannot afford to treat the word of God like we are conditioned to listen to public speaking because these are the words of life. And because your eternal state hinges on whether you truly believe these words, 
You ought to give great attention to them. But just like there are challenges and difficulties and hurdles to overcome in listening to preaching of the Word, there are also difficult challenges to learning to really listen to and follow the Word of God. Whenever we read it or hear it read, or proclaimed. In fact, last week we saw that there are actually four critical ways James warns us about in this text, if we look really carefully, that, that cause us to disengage from God's word rather than engage in it, rather than welcoming it humbly and getting under its authority. There are ways that we disengage from it. That's the way I'm approaching this text. We saw last week that the first one is the fact that we can dismiss the word in hastiness. Because after James says at the beginning of verse 19, let every person be quick to hear, he also says we should be slow to speak. And remember, every one of these phrases connects to this idea of the word of God. He's not just giving us some moralisms here. He's talking about how we listen to God's word, how we follow it, how we submit to it. Because when we're speaking, we're not listening. You can't do both at the same time. When we're speaking, we're concerned with what we have to say. When we're listening, we're concerned with what God has to say. So often we're so hasty to speak. Someone mentions a verse of Scripture and our brains are already thinking, oh, I know that one. I've heard that before. Or we're quick to justify ourselves. I already do that. I don't really struggle with that. I already believe that. We're so quick to say it. And we're really not listening. We're really not engaging. Because we won't stand still long enough to let the word sink in and wash over us. Time for the divine agent of the Holy Spirit to take his word, the instrument of his word, to begin to deal with our hearts. So we get little doses of the word that often have no real impact. It's as if we've been inoculated with just enough of the word of God that it keeps us from becoming infected with its sanctifying, probing, transforming work. So James would say, when you hear the word, be quiet, stand still, don't talk for a while, reflect, consider, yield, be a good listener to the word. Well, this morning, let's go a few steps further. There's another critical way that we can disengage from God's word. These are warnings to us. If we can dismiss the word in hastiness, we can also resist the word in anger. We can resist the word in anger. Well, how does that happen? Well, let's look back at the text. James says, in contrast to hearing the word of God, that we should be both slow to speak and slow to anger. This word for anger is often translated wrath. It's actually a kind of intense anger. And let me add this idea really quickly. When James says to be slow to wrath, he's not saying, you know, uh, go ahead and be wrathful, you know, be angry, it's okay, but just be slow about it. That's not what he's saying here. James is being poetic. Remember, James is uh, styling his letter like the Jewish Proverbs and other wisdom literature. He's, he's playing on the idea of quickness and slowness here. Because there are obviously times in our lives when we need to speak and we, we should be angry with the right kind of anger. But James here is saying, when it comes to God's word, to go the way of listening, not the way of speaking, and not the way of anger. Anger is a critical way that we disengage from hearing and submitting to the Word of God. Now, why is that? Well, just think about it for a moment. Has the Word of God ever made you angry? Have you ever not liked what you were reading in the Word of God? 
Have you ever wrestled with God about what he's saying to you in a text? Have you ever gotten upset with the preacher of the word because he was urging you to believe and obey something in the word and it was making you feel uncomfortable? I've never heard anyone say this here at Gateway, but uh, in the church I pastored in North Carolina, every once in a while, somebody would tell me, I'm glad I had my steel-toed boots on today, preacher, because you were stepping on my feet, you know? And uh, I don't really know if that meant the submissiveness there, but, uh, you know, I, it, was, it, was a, it was a kind way of saying, hey, this text was, was really dealing with me, and I was praise God for that. Now, so far, maybe some of you have said, Yes to one of those questions. I was asking you if you've ever been angry about God's word. But I wouldn't be surprised at this point if many of you have said, no, not really. I don't remember really getting angry about God's word. I can't say I've ever been able to say yes to one of those questions. I've been reading God's word. And yes, I've wrestled with things, but I've never really gotten, gotten angry. That's because all of the situations I just mentioned, you can maintain some control over your life. You hear a sermon but maybe nobody is holding you accountable to obey it. You can read something in your Bible privately, but you can negotiate the meaning. But have you ever had someone in authority over you tell you you can't do that because it's against God's word? Or you need to start doing this because this is what God wants. And rather than responding with humility and a desire to go to the scripture and see if this is true and then to align yourself with the word of God, you started seething inside. Maybe you even blew up. Some people clam up, some people blow up. There's different kinds of expressions of anger depending on our personality. Or, or maybe a friend came to you and said, hey, can we talk? I'm concerned. I, I see this thing going on in your life, but that's not what God's word says you should be doing and, and you need to stop this. And even if you were polite on the outside, maybe you were humiliated and angry on the inside. Who does she think she is? Why is he being so holier than thou? And worst of all, perhaps, the confrontation or correction, God does this sometimes to us. It may have come from a person that you regarded as less in stature than yourself, less spiritual than yourself. And to make matters even worse, let's say that the way this person approached the situation was not a biblical way to approach it. They brought something up about your life, but it was not the way God's word says you should go about telling people their problems. Have you ever heard that before? Well, I didn't like the way they did it, right? Now, can you remember a time, if I'm mentioning this, that you might have gotten angry about some kind of confrontation in your life? If you had Christian parents, you can probably think of times. Because these kinds of situations test whether we really do care what God tells us. Whether we are meekly receiving the word. Do we desire to receive and submit to the teaching of the word of God so much that even if we receive correction or rebuke from someone we looked down on, we submit not to the messenger, but to the word, inwardly as well as outwardly, with no resentment, no rancor, no pride, no bitterness, because we just want to follow God's word. Is that our real desire? But what happens when we get angry? What happens when we resist? We, we dig in our heels. We stubbornly begin to seethe. 
Because the word was fine when I could exercise my will over whether I commit to it. We like the idea of commitment because we can, we can give certain levels of commitment and, and, and back off on our commitment. But now the message of the text appears to be forcing itself upon my idea of what I want to do with my life. And if we are being made to comply by those who are over us, we comply as little as we possibly can and still get by. Or we go along on the outside, but we are not yielding on the inside. And we start making our exit plan about the life we're going to live as soon as we can get out from under this oppressive authority that's trying to get us to do what the Bible says. But rather than becoming angry or making an exit strategy, we ought to give glory to God that he brought a situation into our lives which revealed to us just how much we really want to follow his word. Because when we become angry about the notion of taking a different path because God's word, God's word points us in that direction, we are not experiencing meekness. That's called arrogance. That's stubbornness, which God says in 1 Samuel 15 is equal to iniquity and idolatry. Now, why is this? Why does anger lead us in the wrong direction? Look at what James tells us in verse 20. He says, for, here's his reason, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. That's the goal, isn't it? That's what we want to see in our lives, right? That's what we want to see in our church. That's what the word of God drives us toward. We learn through receiving the word meekly to follow the Lord in believing and obeying so that what is right comes out of our lives, not what is is wrong, so that God is glorified, not us, and whatever source it comes from, be it somebody that we didn't expect it from, be it somebody we didn't like, be it it a sermon, We, we look at the situation, we look at God's word and we say, God, is this really true? Is this something I need to do? And we yield to it. But human anger will never produce divine righteousness. Do you know why? Stubbornness will never produce the righteousness of God because righteous anger is concerned about God's testimony and God's will. Human anger, literally the anger of a man, it says in this text, is not concerned about God's reputation, but about his own reputation. Not about God's will, but about his own will. And when you invade a person's pride with the word of God and when the teaching of the word of God threatens the things someone holds dear, that person is going to get angry. We don't like it when somebody messes with our gods. And this self-righteous, defensive anger will never produce the righteousness of God in our life because there is no humble submission to the word of God. And and listen, this is is not just... uh, trying to make everybody feel guilty about the word of God, okay? Brothers and sisters, we need to be broken when it comes to God's word. We, we, we need to yearn to want to do the clear teaching of it so that our heart is saying yes whenever we open it, whenever we hear it, whenever we read it. If God's very word is what matters to us, then we should meekly be ready to receive it, to believe it, and let God himself alter the course of our life and lead us in the way that he wants us to go. But if we keep reading this text, we're going to discern a third critical way that we disengage from this process of meekly receiving the word. James says that we could dismiss the word in hastiness. We don't want to do that. 
And we can resist the word in anger. And it might not be a great anger, but it might just be a, a resistance that we have. We can do that. We're capable of it. We need to be aware of that. But thirdly, we can also ignore the word in sin. In other words, we can choke out the ministry of the word in our lives because we allow unconfessed sin to remain. Let's look back at verse 21. Therefore, he says, put away or lay aside. It's actually a Greek verb that's used for for taking off clothes. Lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I want you to notice the direct correlation between putting away sin and receiving the implanted word. You see the connection there? The one comes before the other in the verse. It's true, but the actions are intended to go together. Literally, it reads in the original uh, Greek text, therefore, having put away, receive. Both actually create the command. He's saying you cannot receive the word with meekness if you are holding on to sin with arrogance. The two are mutually exclusive. But notice the way he describes sin, filthiness and rampant wickedness. Or it says, as it says in the King James, one of my favorite verses, uh, superfluity of naughtiness. That's one of the most, the greatest uh, translations in all of, of, of English Bible translation. Superfluity of naughtiness, excessive wickedness, real badness. But the ESV, I think, does a great job here rendering the original language into English. These are intense words. Filthiness and excessive evil is what he's saying. Now, you're probably thinking, why does James use these terms? Because these don't seem like the normal words for sin. Okay, if you're growing up in a Christian house and you do something really bad, your parents might go to this kind of language to try to you know, really help you understand that that was wrong and this is never going to happen again. We, we kind of go over the top sometimes uh, in our language. And, and, and these words are like that. They, they express this terrible sin. We normally wouldn't explain our sin as filthy and rampant. Those terms are reserved for the terrible sins that we think about that other people do. But you see, James is using these expressions so that we might understand the terrible nature of sin. And James does this throughout the letter. We're going to see this come up again and again. For example, in James 10, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but breaks one little point, he's guilty of the breaking the whole law. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, when he refers to the tongue, he calls it a fire, a world of unrighteousness that is set on fire by hell. He says in James 4, 2, that believers who are quarreling are actually murdering one another. He says in verse 4 of that chapter that if you have friendship with the world, a friendship with the world, it's nothing short of adultery and enmity with God. And then he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, if you make plans without saying, Lord willing, you are an arrogant and evil boaster. I mean, James is really going to say some hard things as we keep reading this little practical letter, right? As, we, as, we, as we've talked about. So when it comes to the subject of sin, James does not pull any punches. But you see, he's, he's not exaggerating. He's rebuking sin by calling it what it is. I don't care what sin it is. Sin is filth. Sin is rampant wickedness. And when we do not see our sin in this way, 
We either are thinking too lightly of our sin or we don't think enough of the righteousness of God. The pure holiness of God and the disgusting blackness of sin are polar opposites, infinitely separated. If we're going to learn to meekly receive the word, we've got to see our sin the way God sees our sin and put it away and confess it and forsake it. We think that we can hold on to our sin and carry it to our Bible studies, carry it to our Sunday school class, carry it to our church services, carry it to our devotional groups and our discipleship meeting as if everything is okay. Never being honest with ourselves or honest with God. This is not meekness. This is arrogance. And it is one of the critical ways that we disengage from meekly receiving the word because our sin is an egotistical barrier to a life of receiving the word with meekness. And the Lord would say to us today as believers, confess your sin, turn from it, and meekly submit to the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And I think here James is simply saying that it's only the word of God that can save you. The divine word that he calls us to meekly submit to, that word contains the gospel that saved you from sin and allowed you to experience the righteousness of Christ. We all, we're aware of that, right? This, this word we're talking about contains the gospel that saved you from sin in the first place and allows you to experience the righteousness of Christ now. You submitted to that word when you came to Christ for salvation. You submitted humbly and meekly because you recognized that there was nothing in you that could save yourself. And your only hope was to reach outside of yourself and trust in that truth that, was, that, that you were being pointed to through the word of God. And you became a child of God because of this living word. Well, how unthinkable then that we should go on and treat the word with arrogance and sin going against the commands of this very word that brought us to Jesus Christ. James says, no, put away the filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the word with meekness that you received when you came to faith to begin with. Remove that barrier to following the word as God intended. Now, there's one final critical way that we can disengage from God's word. I know, we're, I know we're hurrying through these, but, but they're going to come up again as we go through James. I promise you that. But James is not done here. He's setting the stage for what we're going to see in the rest of the letter. There's a final critical way that we can disengage from God's word instead of receiving it meekly. The fourth is this. We can disobey the word in, in self-deception. We can disobey the word in self-deception. And this brings us to a very familiar text that you've been hearing all your lives if you grew up in church, but I, I hope that you can hear it now in the context of how it's intended. In verses 22 through 25, we read these words, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let's pause there for a second. Remember back in verse 19, James begins, let every person be swift to hear. And I brought, your, uh, brought attention to that verse last week. Being swift to hear does not simply mean physical hearing. It's, it's actually an act of obedience. It's like when your mom, uh, when you're growing up, said, do you hear me? And what she means is, are you going to obey me? Are you going to listen to me? That's the kind of hearing he's talking about. Hearing with the intent to act on what is being said. Well, here, James makes this more explicit. 
because he says you cannot simply hear the word, you have to do the word. And if you are only hearing and you are not a doer, then you are deceiving yourself, he says. Notice, this idea of deceiving is a rare word in the New Testament. It's used here and only in one other place. It's used in Colossians to describe the deception of the false teachers in Colossae. But I, I looked up this word in a lot of Greek literature that's contemporary to the first century or, or a couple of centuries before, and I, I, I realized that this word is used very often for false reasoning, false thinking. In other words, you're deceiving yourself by not thinking through caref- things carefully, by, by not following a sequence of, of ideas to a logical conclusion. A non sequitur for some of you debaters and logicians. James says that you are leading yourself down an absurd path. You are missing the whole point. So, how is hearing the word without doing the word leading yourself down the wrong path? Missing the whole point. Reasoning with facts to a ridiculous conclusion. The answer is in his metaphor. He says, for... If anyone is a a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James says that hearing the word is like a man looking in a mirror. Two things about that. First of all, the the text literally says like a male, a male looking intently at his natural face in a mirror. Now, I'm not going to say this dogmatically, but it may be that James is saying a male as opposed to a female, a man as opposed to a woman looking at his face in a mirror. And I can't say for certain that that's his intention, but if it is, then it certainly adds something to the nuance of his illustration, contrasting the forgetful male who who sees and forgets and the more sensitive female who spends longer looking into the mirror and then acts upon what she sees. Second, I talked about this the Sunday we began this series in James, as I went to this text to 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 kind of illustrate what we're going to see in James. So you might remember, but a, a mirror in James' day is not like a mirror in our day. Uh, their mirrors were usually polished metals, much more polished than this picture here, but this is like an ancient mirror from Egypt or something like that. Uh, it's one of the only pictures I could find online. Uh, but, but they would polish that metal so you could see a reflection in it. And, and there is only one other place, remember, that a mirror is used as a metaphor in the New Testament. Some of you know it's second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 where Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, because that's how people looked in mirrors. They, they, they saw a dim reflection of themselves. But then the comparison face to face. But if they had, had mirrors like ours today that show a very clear reflection, I don't know that they would have ever come up with this metaphor because looking in our mirrors today is kind of like seeing face to face. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's a very clear reflection. So when you think of the way James is using the mirror, you need this morning, when you look at the text, to think about somebody having to study the reflection in order to see himself. 
So here's a guy who comes to a mirror. He looks intently because it's hard to see yourself in their mirrors. And then he goes away, and here's the key to the metaphor. Because there's a lot of things people say about this text that James, someday when we get to heaven, will say, oh, that's a really neat idea. I wish I would have thought of that. You know? uh, there's an idea he has here. And we could bring a lot to the text, but this is the key. He says, he forgets what he saw. It goes out of his mind. Now the contrast in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's the Bible, we understand, and perseveres. He doesn't go away, but he continues to look. Being no hearer who, what? Forgets, see? But a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So notice the difference between these two hearers. Two people are hearing the word. Both of them hear the sermon, we could say, or both of them read the same text. They have their devotions in the morning, let's say. James says, one looks intently, because that's how you had to look at a mirror. One looks intently, and the other looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. There's really no contrast in the text. Some people say, well, there's a difference between looking and in, in the one verb and looking the other. Really, it, it's immaterial. James is just saying there's two people who look. But here's the contrast. The first person goes his way and forgets. The second perseveres and acts. It is only the person who perseveres and acts, he follows, he believes, he does what the word says, that will be blessed in his doing. That is, the one who will realize God's goodness and guidance, who will know the the peace of God and the joy of God and the strength and assurance of walking with the Lord. So what is this self-deception? It's this. The self-deception is in thinking that just because you are hearing the word or reading the word or going to the Bible study or wherever you might encounter the word of God, that just because you are doing those things, you are automatically okay. That your relationship with God is fine. That somehow this act of putting yourself under the preaching and teaching and reading the word of God is an end in itself. Or to put it bluntly, that you're a pretty good Christian just because you go to church and read your Bible. But those things, as important as they are, and don't ever stop doing them, do them more. Those things, as important as they are, are not an end in themselves. They're a means unto an end. Imagine a man boasting to himself, wow, I looked at the mirror for 10 whole minutes this morning. Now, maybe some of you guys did, but don't go admitting that, okay? But let's say he said, I looked at the mirror for 10 whole minutes this morning. And he comes downstairs and his wife says, "Uh, honey, you going to have to comb your hair? Are you going to shave? Are you going to wash your face? See, husbands don't need mirrors because we have our wives uh, to tell us what's wrong with us. Uh, But what if at this point the husband objects? What do you mean comb my hair, shave, clean up my face? Do you know how much time I spent looking at the mirror this morning? We would all think that this guy has reasoned himself to a ridiculous end. He is self-deceived because he has missed the whole point of the mirror. And that, of course, is what James is saying. And think about it. Can we even imagine a group of believers in Christian history who are more saturated with opportunities to hear the word of God than ours? 
And yet we can allow the fact that we constantly hear the word to make us think that somehow this is great, that we're in fellowship with God without even having to engage and do the word. So James says, don't be deceived. If you are not acting upon what you hear and what you read, you are disobeying the word of God. You might object to this. I mean, I didn't mean to disobey. I, I, I'm not trying to sin against God. Do we go around consciously trying to sin against God? We say, no, 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 I just, I, I just forgot. No, 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 no. Look at the text. Remembering is part of obeying. If you didn't remember, then you didn't even take the first step of obedience. You didn't remember because what you heard or what you saw was not important to you. So you forgot about it. You disregarded it. And we disregard things that we don't think are necessary. We hear so much stuff all the time. We, we're saturated with ideas. We, we actually have this mechanism in our brain that gets rid of the things that we really don't need. We all do this. Or else we'd go crazy with how much stimulation our brains get every day, listening to the media and talking to all kinds of people. We have this mechanism inside that, that sets things aside that are not important to us. For the believer in Christ, one of those things should never be what God says in his word. That should be something that rivets us, something that we pay attention to. And it's arrogance not to think this way. It's not meekness. It's not submission. And it represents a critical way that we can disengage from God's word rather than engaging with it and letting it change us. Now, I'm going to end this sermon right here. But this is far from over because James is going to continue to apply this message in many ways. We're going to get a lot of application out of this out of this sermon today, but it's not my application. It's going to be James's application. He's going to challenge us right away in the next few verses about looking religious on the outside but not being religious on the inside. In fact, those verses actually go with this text, but it's already 20 after, and I'm not going to be here next week. So I, I, I'm going to draw the line right there, and we'll do a whole new sermon on those last two verses. And then we go into chapter 2. He's going to continue to give us illustrations. In fact, in chapter 2, as a lot of you know, and you're looking forward to walking through this text, in chapter 2, he is going to challenge us about the genuineness of our faith. He's going to say the test of the genuineness of our faith is whether or not our faith is accompanied by works of obedience. And that is rooted in what he says here in this text this morning. And there's so much more. So we have a lot of ground to cover, but it all hinges on this idea that we need to be receivers of the word. We need to welcome God's word. This week, as you, hear, as you read the word, as, 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 you, as, you, as you actually make decisions about your day, what am I going to do with my time? Make time for the word of God and go to it saying, God, show me something. Teach me something. Lead me. I want to say yes to whatever you tell me. This is the kind of Christian life we ought to be living every single day. We can think we are living this way until we recognize that sometimes these damaging, critical ways get in the way of our engagement. We can dismiss the word. We can resist the word. We can ignore the word. We can even disobey the word, and it doesn't impact us. God forbid. So may God give us the grace to get under the authority of the word, to reflect upon it and not be satisfied until we know by God's grace we are struggling to live it out. That's what it means to live up to your faith. Father, thank you.